Well, it's a privilege for me to be with you today, to say the least. Um, I've known Mike for a long time. You're a pastor, and you've uh, done extremely well. I don't know really anybody, any of colleagues uh, over the years that enjoys being a pastor more than Mike does, and I'm totally honored to be able to fill in for him a little bit here as he's enjoying uh, time with the men of this church, at least some of the men of this church. I'm glad to see some of you out here as well. So that's a, a, a great thing as well. And uh, I was um, I told he was going through the book of Acts, and uh, I'm going to depart from that a little bit. But uh, in one sense, uh, I want to talk about mission, and that's what the early church happened to be doing during that time, and that's what we're to carry on. So the book of Acts is one of those books that, practically speaking, is uh, never quite completed and won't be until the Lord uh, finally returns. But uh, as you also well know, uh, the early church had a bit of a checkered history as far as how they were doing things. There was a little bit of good and a little bit of bad, and God has a way of working with our weaknesses and uh, enabling us to carry on for his own glory. But I think, you know, at the beginning of that early church when, when uh, it was all being formed there in Acts chapter 2, and then you skip over a little bit, and you find the deception of Ananias and Sapphira, who wanted to appear more generous than they really were. And then the courage of Stephen, who in a courtroom-like setting laid bare the hypocrisy of the religious leaders as he marched through Israel's history. Uh, and they just took him out and stoned him, and as his life was being crushed out of him, he prayed for him, the uh, kind of guy that he was. The treachery of Saul of Tarsus, who oversaw the stoning of Stephen and launched a persecution against the church, the likes of which has probably never been seen since, at least in that kind of a context. Uh, and yet God struck him down on the road to Damascus, and he became the Apostle Paul and uh, got involved in the ministry, and oh, goodness, the church would be impoverished without what uh, he has done. Uh, and then you think of the encouragement of Barnabas, uh, who pastored in Antioch and uh, nurtured that church along and also made possible Paul's entry into the public ministry. And then the wisdom of James in leading the Jerusalem council, where they dealing with that sticky issue of whether or not a Gentile could become part of the church without first embracing Judaism. And James says they don't have to embrace Judaism. And it was a landmark decision because God was working through the nation of Israel and now transferring it all to the church here and the church was going to carry on the gospel because Israel forfeited it just because of their own disobedience in killing the Messiah. But nevertheless, it, it continued on and continued on. And by the way, James that was leading this council of Jerusalem was not the James brother of John and one of the original 12 disciples. The James we're talking about here is the half-brother of Jesus who grew up in the same home, and he rejected his son, or his older brother, as the Messiah, but ultimately was totally transformed and came around and wrote that most practical letter at the end of the New Testament that bears his name. And then uh, they were leaving Asia and leaving uh, the, the Middle East there, and Paul took Silas, and they went over to Macedonia and Greece there, and thrown in jail for, you know, casting a 
a stone or a, a demon out of a little slave girl and uh, singing hymns there at midnight, just thanking God they had a chance to suffer for him as he did for them. So it's just a, a lot of blessed, blessed stuff. You know, what happened in Acts also happened, was, was prayed about by Jesus in the Gospel of John. And uh, you may recall that uh, about seven weeks prior to Pentecost, actually 50 days before Pentecost, when you look at the death and the resurrection, the last night that Jesus happened to be on the face of this earth, uh, he gathered his disciples together in an upper story flat there in the city of Jerusalem, and he gave what was known as the upper room discourse during that time. He washed their feet, he instituted the Lord's Supper, then he talked about his departure, that he'd be leaving them for a while, but he would prepare a place and come back and receive them. But in the meantime, he would not leave them as orphans. He would send the Spirit of God who would empower them and guide them into all truth. And he talked about uh, him being the vine and we being the branches and abiding in the vine. And when he finished that upper room discourse, he uttered a prayer a high priestly prayer. They probably left the upper story flat and somewhere in the middle of the night they stopped maybe on a street on their way to, Jesus was on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, but he stopped and he prayed. And it was a great, great prayer, but he mentioned something that's very cogent to what we're talking about today. He mentioned something about mission. And he says, Father, as you sent me into the world, so I am sending them into the world. And what, what Jesus is doing here, he's talking about the idea of mission and what it's all about. In fact, it, it encapsulates mission, the Son sending us into the world itself. The word mission, it's a good word. It comes from the Latin word missio, which means to send. Some of you might be familiar with the English word missive, which means letter. Uh, so to be in mission means to be sent, and we're sent in order to reveal. The Father sent the Son into the world to reveal to the world what God is like. And then the Son commissioned his church to do exactly the same. Go into the world and represent me and tell the world what I'm like. If you, um, if you were to go to uh, a capital city of a foreign country, uh, chances are you would find in an exclusive area of that city uh, a kind of a, a neat little place where a lot of foreign ambassadors would live. And an ambassador is like a missionary. They leave their homeland, they go to a foreign country, and one of their jobs, among other things, is to dispel stereotypes of what their country is really like and present their land, their homeland, in a true and honest way. And uh, we're ambassadors for Christ. So what are we doing? We're as citizens of heaven. He is sending us out as missionaries on earth to engage in mission, to dispel the stereotypes that people have about the God of the universe and give a true and honest picture of what he, in fact, is like. Um, we let the world know that uh, Christ came to make broken people whole and make sinful people holy. 
He did it to, to deliver from eternal death and give eternal life. And uh, this is where the rub comes, uh, right here. It's the kind of uh, saving from eternal death and, and giving eternal life that uh, kind of grates against our own culture. Uh, you know, we live in a pretty conservative area, and chances are the people that live around you would all agree that the church is a good influence on the culture. I mean, fine, upstanding people, they enjoy being married, they enjoy fellowship, they enjoy reaching out into the community and being helpful in everything. The church is a good thing. What they don't understand, and sometimes what grates against them, is why does the church always feel they need to convert people? I mean, their message is so narrow. Believe in Jesus, otherwise you're going to hell. You know, and because of that, missionaries get terrible press. You know, whenever they're depicted in the media or some other form, it's always uh, in a negative fashion. And missionaries that leave America and go to other places of the country are often looked upon as shallow imperialists and destroyers of culture. And yet, uh, the Lord looks at it differently. The idea is this, if the world is dying in sin and you have the antidote to that, then you, know, you have a responsibility to, to let it be known. If uh, mission makes sense, if the gospel is the antidote, if people need truth and you possess the truth, then to love them is to share the truth. So when we talk about mission, mission is the synergy uh, of love and truth coming together in order to present a true and honest picture of Jesus Christ. If you have love but no truth, you don't have mission. If you have truth but no love, you don't have mission. So mission is the two of them coming together. And once we've tasted the living water of God that springs up to eternal life, then we can never again say that uh, my faith is a private thing. And there's an urgency to it uh, because, in effect, our mission is saving people from eternal death and giving them eternal life. And it's the eternal death part I want to talk this morning. And before we get into it, uh, I'd like to read a passage of Scripture. And it comes out of Luke chapter 16. And I know that you stand for the reading of the Word of God, so I invite you to turn to Luke 16, and uh, beginning in verse 19, and I'm going to uh, read that for us. It's a little bit of a lengthy reading, but uh, it's always a good thing to read the Bible. It makes up for a lot of poor preaching, okay? Here we go. Luke, 19 verse, Luke 16, verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus, who was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, so that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water 
and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my brother's house. For I have five brothers in order that they may warn, he may warn them so that they will not come also to this place of torment. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, if some, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if somebody rises from the dead. The word of God, you may be seated. Uh, This morning, I'd like to address the eternal death part of what happens if... uh, the message of the gospel is not received. And there's, that's part of the urgency of why we share it. You know, the theology of what we speak of as, as hell is without question the most unpopular of all of the Christian doctrines. Uh, about 60, 70 years ago, there was an English mathematician and philosopher named Bertrand Russell. And he wrote a 25-page essay entitled, Why... I am not a Christian. And uh, he, he launches, the, the, the essay itself doesn't reflect the towering intellect that Russell had, but he made a disturbing statement. He said that there's one defect in Jesus' character, and that is that he believed in hell. And then he goes on to give his own vision of morality or his own view of morality, uh, and, and say, they, I cannot imagine any humane person that believes in everlasting punishment. And honestly speaking, we all struggle with it. We all wonder about this concept of everlasting punishment. It's just shrouded in mystery, seems so horrible. But what Russell um, is, is implicitly saying here is that he is more compassionate and less barbaric than the Lord Jesus. And that's just not possible. Uh, In Luke, uh, in this passage here, it's really an instructive parable about Jesus. And it is a story about a rich man uh, and a poor man. And the rich man lived in luxury. He had this palatial estate in a gated community surrounded by botanical gardens. Uh, He wore the finest of clothes and ate the choicest of foods and uh, hung with the people that made things happen. The poor man, on the other hand, uh, was disabled. Uh, Other individuals brought him to the gate of the rich man. He couldn't get there by himself. Uh, Furthermore, he was hungry. Uh, He was hoping that a servant of the rich man would bring the table scraps, the leftovers, even the stuff that might have fallen on the ground 
so that he would have something to eat. And on top of that, he was helpless, unable to keep the dogs uh, from licking the sores on his own bo body. And so you, you have this, this abject poverty juxtaposed with uh, a vulgar display of wealth. Uh, you know, when they die, however, things are reversed. The poor man enters into the bliss of heaven and eternal life. The rich man enters into the pain of hell and eternal death. You know, um, but there is a kind of a subtle key that unlocks the difference. And that is the poor man had a name and the rich man did not have a name. Uh, you know, in all of Jesus' parables, when you read them in the New Testament, what you discover is that uh, there are all kinds of titles. There's the prodigal son, the elder brother, the father, the Pharisee, the tax collector, the good Samaritan. Uh, all of them are titles. And every character of every parable that Jesus talked about uh, is anonymous except for this one right here. You find one character with a name, and his name is Lazarus, which means the one God helps. Uh, the rich man is not given a name, implying that um, all he really had were his riches. And really, the, the remainder of the story is a conversation between the rich man in hell and Abraham, who was with Lazarus there in heaven. And again, this is a parable. It doesn't mean to imply that visibility and communication uh, are possible between the two eternal destinies. What this parable does is kind of reflect Jewish thinking at the time, and it helps us understand it a little bit as well. So it's not necessarily exactly the way the destinies are going to be, but nevertheless, uh, it helps us understand. Um, there are three realities uh, about the eternal punishment part, about hell, that I'd like to share with you. And I'll do it briefly, but each successive reality builds on the one before it. So the second one builds off the first one, and the, sec and the third one builds off the first two. So let me just briefly share them with you, at least from my understanding of the Bible. Uh, first of all, those who reject Christ and end up in hell are going to find themselves completely free from God. Uh, you know, the Bible tells us that um, uh, we were designed to live for the glory of God, uh, to show him that he matters, that he is consequential, that he is weighty. Uh, but with the entrance of sin into the world, what happens is we shifted from the design of giving God the glory to wanting to be our own sovereign, our own king, and live for our own glory. Uh, we want to be free from God, so to speak. Uh, on earth, no one, no one individual is completely free from God. I'll tell you why. What God has done in his common grace, just his benevolence toward all people, he has taken things like kindness and generosity and friendship and love and marriage and uh, all of these wonderful attributes and he has just poured them out on all humanity like a bucket of jewels. 
In other words, an individual might be outside the redeemed community, but man, they're not outside the benevolence of God, and God is just blessing humanity over and over and over again. And we know a lot of people that have never embraced the gospel, but you know, humanly speaking, they're absolutely wonderful. Their act is together, they're incredibly trustworthy, they're hardworking, loyal to their spouses, raising good kids, and tremendous assets in the community. So they're not, no one is completely separated from God here on earth. But if a person dies without embracing salvation through Christ, they will be completely separated. And so what hell is, is unmitigated separation from God. There's nothing there. Common grace is lifted, so to speak. Okay? Second one, as a result of being free from God, those who are in hell lose their beauty. And it, my understanding is this. Um, the image of God in us, all, all humanity is made in the image of God, and that allows us to be civil and wonderful and friends and, and everything. But when the, in hell, the image of God is lifted. Uh, and sin breaks out in fire. You see, if you, when you go to heaven, uh, sin is eliminated, and the image of God explodes in glory. And, uh, you know, even in the best of marriages, the best of friendships right now, there's still a little bit of posturing and, and uh, deception that goes on and all of these other things, but all of that's going to be lifted in heaven. The image of God will explode in glory, and we will see each other and have a community that was designed without any sin, without any deception, and the fellowship will be phenomenal. It's just the opposite in hell. The image of God is lifted, and that which is associated with sin breaks out like a forest fire. And, and uh, you know, when the image of God is lifted, all that's left is anger and gnashing of teeth. In other words, what sin began here and the breaking down of our humanity on earth is finished off in hell itself. And uh, that's why hell is so lonely. Community is absolutely impossible because there's nothing there that would ever draw us to one another. There's no compassion, there's no concern, there's no friendliness, it's just abject selfishness. It's endless autobiography. It's all about you. So, when we go to hell, we're separated from God completely. And uh, when we're separated from God, we lose our beauty. And then the third thing is that our freedom from God was chosen by us if we go in that direction. You know, George MacDonald and he was a, a writer in the 1800s and a, a bit of a mentor, at least through his works, to C.S. Lewis. And he said, uh, he said this, every person must come to a point in life where they look at God and say, thy will be done, I am not my own, or they're going to come to the end of their life and God will come to them and say, thy will be done, you are your own. So people who enter into hell are getting exactly what they've demanded their entire life, complete freedom from God. Nothing unjust about that. 
And then C.S. Lewis says this, the answer to those who object to the doctrine of hell is a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out past sins and give you a fresh start? He did that at Calvary. To forgive? You don't want to be forgiven. To leave you alone? Alas, that's exactly what he does. Now, in the parable, interestingly enough, the rich man doesn't repent. He doesn't demand to get out. Um, there's no repentance in hell. He just simply says, send Lazarus down here and have him touch my tongue with a, a drop of water to relieve me in my torment. He still sees himself as being a master and Lazarus as being a servant. And Abraham said, no, uh, he can't do that. You know, it's an uncrossable barrier here. He can't go from one to another. And he says, well, then have him go back uh, to earth uh, as someone who has risen from the dead and warn my five brothers so that they don't have to come here. And again, Abraham says, there's a, an uncrossable gulf here. And by the way, you know, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures here. And the rich man says, yeah, but if somebody from the dead goes, they'll really believe. Now, this isn't concern for his brothers. I mean, there's no compassion in hell. There's no evangelism in hell. Uh, this is uh, uh, self-serving here. It's uh, blame-shifting. It's like the rich man saying, I wouldn't be here if I had more information. Uh, I, I wouldn't be here at all, you know. So he says, listen, Abraham is saying, someone rising from the dead will never provoke belief. It didn't with the Lord Jesus, at least in a broad category. Romans chapter one tells us that people don't reject God for lack of information. They reject him because of the hardness of their hearts. Now there's a little sidebar I wanna share with you because sometimes um, Christians get accused of being inconsistent and being absolutely narrow-minded, but in reality, uh, we're just being consistent with that which we believe. You know, for instance, uh, both Christians and non-Christians believe that self-centeredness, cruelty, exploitation, oppression have serious consequences, and they do. And they go beyond the immediate act on into the future. Now, if a person doesn't believe in the afterlife, they believe that the consequences of bad behavior cease at the time of death. Those that do believe in the afterlife, those who are Christians, believe that the consequences continue on into eternity. And so, bottom line, both Christians and non-Christians are simply acting and following the natural logic of their own belief systems. Now let me um, close with just a couple of reminders today, okay? Uh, they're simple, uh, uh, but I think uh, something that we can walk out of here with. The first one is, you know, we're here and we're awaiting the coming of the Lord, but in the midst of this life itself, it's to be on our guard so that we don't ever trifle with sin. And the reason that we don't want to trifle with it is because every sin that I commit, every sin that you commit, is really a suicidal act against our own character, against our own humanity, 
A mind that sins becomes less of a mind. A will that sins uh, loses its willpower. So sin has a way of chipping away at the beauty of our humanity. And that means that if we dabble in something that we know is wrong, if we delight in some little secret sin that nobody else knows about, uh, we're in the process of letting that hollow out our own humanity. Uh, the longer, and the longer we let that fire burn, uh, the more hollow, uh, the more acute the disintegration of our humanity will become. So don't dabble, don't trifle with sin. The second one is uh, hell reminds us of the extent of God's love. You know, skeptics of the Christian faith would say that uh, a loving God and the presence of hell or everlasting punishment are mutually exclusive. In other words, if you have a loving God, then you can't have everlasting punishment. If you have everlasting punishment, then you can't have a loving God. You can have one or the other, but not both. Uh, consider this for a moment. Uh, the Bible says that the presence of hell leads to the greatest demonstration of love that we can possibly imagine. Uh, and the fact that, think about this as well. Uh, if eternity in hell for any one single individual could ever atone for sin, it wouldn't be eternal. We'd eventually get out. And that tells us that what Jesus did on the cross did atone for sin. And what he did, uh, and, and it wasn't just atoning for one sin, it was atoning for our sins, all of our sins. And on top of that, he did it in the space of three hours. And if the death of Christ atoned for sin, and eternity in hell does not atone for sin, then it's fair to say that what Jesus suffered on the cross was infinitely worse than eternity in hell for any one of us. Uh, infinitely worse. You know, the physical and spiritual suffering of the Son of God is really beyond our ability to comprehend. And during those three hours when the earth was covered in darkness, remember that? When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the earth was blanketed in darkness. It was during that time somewhere along the line that the innocent Lamb of God was bearing up our hellish experience. And we just don't know what was going on during that time. We'll never be able to comprehend it. And yet when the Father looks at you, he says it was worth it. And that's unbelievable. When he looks at me, he says, you know, it was worth it. The object of his redemptive love. You see, if you dismiss the doctrine of hell, not only do you make Jesus a fraud because he taught it, but you're also trivializing his suffering. You're saying, the love of God for me cost him nothing, when in reality, it cost him everything. And the love of God is not ever measured 
by the existence of hell, it's really measured by the extent that he would go to keep you out of it and keep me out of it. And that's why Jesus is our treasure. That's why our songs, our music, our emphasis in a church is all about Christ and him crucified. Because it's from there and all the tributaries of living for the Lord go out. But that, that's the grounding experience of what life is all about for the believing community and what God has done for us. And it's because of that and the security of being a part of the family of God that we can move out in mission and be that light and salt in the communities in which we live. Would you stand in prayer and I'll, clo I'll, I'll uh, close in a word of prayer here. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, sometimes it's a hard subject to delve into this thing and we admit our, our knowledge and our understanding as finite individuals is really, really incomplete. But we pray, Father, that whatever we can draw that, uh, out of your word, that uh, it would be true and that we would understand something about the greatness of your love for us just a little bit more. Pray, Father, that it would lead to continuous change and sanctification on our own part as well as just an incredible desire to make sure that the word gets out. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.